Well, what is your hill to die on? So a year ago on a reputable website, uh, twitter.com, uh, a challenge was posed to name the most trivial hill on which you're willing to die. And the answers came flooding in, including how monopoly rules should be applied, uh, where apostrophes should go. I kind of agree on that one. Um, the correct definition of hummus, and if pineapples do or do not belong on pizza, which is also important. Important issues, right? But the point of the tweet is clear. These things are ridiculous to want to die for because if you're willing to die for something you believe in, it must be worthy of life, worth your very life. Over this past summer, we've been working through the letter of 1 Timothy, a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor in Ephesus during the first century A.D., We've seen Paul warn Timothy about false teaching in the church, instruct him in how to defend the true gospel, and teach him how to better organize his congregation. And repeatedly, we've seen Paul emphasize the importance of how gospel doctrine, so what we believe about God, should impact gospel living, lives lived out in godliness, lived for Christ. And now as we come to the close of this letter, we see Paul give some final exhortations to Timothy. He's to guard the gospel. That's to be his hill to die on. And so in the passage Daryl has just read for us, let's see two basic things this morning. First, the life of the Christian, the life of the Christian, and second, the God of the Christian, the God of the Christian. So first, the life of the Christian and I think in this passage, we see three basic things about the life of the Christian. So here are some three subpoints that we'll work through. The Christian guards the deposit, fights the fight, and stores up the treasure. The Christian guards the deposit, fights the fight, and stores up the treasure. So first, Christians guard the deposit. So look there at verse 20. We'll start towards the end of the passage. Paul writes, O Timothy... Guard the deposit entrusted to you. So as he's concluding the letter, he circles back to the very beginning of the letter and again warns Timothy about false teachers in the church. These false teachers are those who, as he goes on to say, engage in irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. These teachers, who we saw last week, were misleading the church for financial gain, using sort of pretend godliness for profit, maintain that their teaching is the true knowledge. But Paul exposes them again as these conceited babblers, kind of blah, 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 greedy liars, spouting this so-called knowledge that he calls no knowledge at all. Instead, he tells Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to him. This has the idea of valuables placed into the care of someone to protect them. So, Maybe you have some of your most valuable earthly possessions locked away in a bank vault or a safety deposit box or like if you're like, well, I was going to say if you're like me, but I won't give that away, a locked cabinet at home. <laughs> in like manner, Paul says Timothy is to guard what he's received, to protect it from attack. This deposit is the gospel. Timothy has heard it from Paul. He's been given a commission to preach it and to pastor the church that is formed by the gospel. And now as he sees it assailed by false doctrine, he must be strong and stand guard over this precious possession he's been given. 
There in verse 21, Paul reminds Timothy of what he had said back again in chapter 1, that this false teaching eventually will lead its victims to destruction. He says those professing this so-called knowledge, this knowledge that deviates from the true doctrine of Christ, swerve from the faith. The language there is of an arrow missing its mark. They will not finally endure to the end. As we saw in chapter 1, in that vivid image, they will make shipwreck of their faith. Timothy must guard the gospel with his life. He must make it his hill to die on, and so must we. The Christian guards the deposit. Second, the Christian fights the fight. So right before this passage Daryl read for us, Paul has described the false teachers and their greed. You'll remember that from last week. He's warned those who would seek to be rich of the dangers that lie in that pursuit of wealth. And now he turns to Timothy and he, he puts Timothy in contrast to those teachers. He says in verse 11, But as for you, emphatic language, but as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Throughout this letter, Paul has encouraged Timothy over and over again to fight for the faith in, in terms of guarding correct doctrine, right? That's a theme throughout this letter, and I think that's hit on here, but it seems like Paul is placing an even greater emphasis in these verses, 11 and 12, on Timothy's own personal fight of the faith. Encouraging Timothy to be different from these false teachers who are far from God, to flee what they're falling into. Instead, Timothy is to pursue the life of the Christian in sanctification in patterning his life after the life of his Savior to, to pursue righteousness. That, that is practical holiness and obedience being worked out in our lives. To pursue godliness. We've seen that over and over again in 1 Timothy, right? And we defined it most basically as being centered on God. But I think if you want to make it as simple as you can, godliness is living in your life like the gospel is really true. He's to pursue faith. Trust in Christ alone. He's to pursue love both towards God and others. He's to pursue steadfastness, endurance until the end. And finally, he's to pursue gentleness, an attribute we saw given to overseers in the church in chapter 3. See, for Timothy to fight his own fight of the faith, he must both flee and pursue. He must both run away from what will kill him and run towards the one who will give him life. As John Stott puts it, Timothy's duty will involve fight as well as flight, standing as well as running. Dear Christian, I wonder, does your faith involve flight? Sin will find you. You don't need to go looking for it. Temptation will tug at you. So how will you respond? Kind of merely shrugging it off until it bothers you again? Will you try to cohabitate with your sin? 
not thinking it's that big of a deal? Or will you flee? Brothers and sisters, remember, sin cannot be played with. You think of Joseph in the book of Genesis, leaving his cloak in Potiphar's wife's hands and getting out of the house. Some sins might seem respectable, fine to put up with, pride, envy, gossip. But all the sins, including the prettier ones, will not give up until they control you and devour you. You must flee. And if you do, you're going to need a place to run to, right? I think one of the problems in my own Christian life, and I think in general as Christians in this country, is that we can agonize over and over again about the don'ts of our faith, focusing so much on the no-no list that we forget that in fleeing from something, we must then flee to something. So, for example, if your problem is with illicit websites, you can try to get accountability software and try to get friends to help. Those are good things. But if you merely flee from that sin and neglect turning to the one who is infinitely more beautiful and better, you will fail. See here that the fight of the Christian is a fight that both flees and pursues, both retreats and advances, both turns away from and turns to. Christian, are you fleeing sin? And in doing so, are you pursuing Christ? There in verse 12, Paul writes about this good fight of the faith. This is imagery drawn most originally from warfare, military language. Maybe at this time that Paul was writing, it had taken on more of a, an athletic imagery of the Olympic Games, perhaps. Some here see a parallel with the, the illustration Paul uses a lot in 1 Corinthians and Philippians and in 2 Timothy, or, or even at the beginning of 1 Timothy, of, of running a race. And, and in this fight, Timothy is then to take hold there of the eternal life to which he's been called and about which he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So in contrast to the false teachers who are putting all their stock in the valuables of this temporary fleeting world, Timothy is to take hold of, to grasp, to cling to the value that will last eternally. What's this good confession then? Well, some think this is his baptism, his conversion, his his self-made proclamation that he is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Others think Paul's talking about when Paul received the call to his ministry. But whenever it happened, we see that Timothy had committed himself to the fight of the faith, to the gospel of Christ, and he had confessed that truth with his mouth. Verse 13. Paul goes on, he says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember the, the narrative of Christ in the Gospels standing trial before Pilate, the governor of Judea. 
standing there accused by his own people, the Jews. And as Pilate is kind of trying to feel him out and seek to understand more of why these accusations have been brought to this good teacher, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you say that I am. He says, yes, I am a king, though my kingdom is not of this world. Dear friend, if you've turned to Christ, you too have made a confession. That doesn't mean an apology. That means a proclamation of who Jesus is, of the truth about him, that he's not only a king, but he is your king. And just like Jesus' confession and Timothy's confession, your confession will result in two things, in your suffering and in your glory. So as Timothy struggled in his ministry and in his faith, and we see his struggle here, you too, Christian, you who have made a confession of your faith in Christ, you will struggle but your suffering will not be without an end. So just as Jesus was then glorified in the presence of his Father after he died for sin, so you too, we too, church, will be glorified with him. So I wonder, Christian, does it comfort you this morning that Paul understands the Christian life to be one of a struggle, a fight, Maybe that truth unsettles you this morning. Because you're holding out hope that your Christian faith will be an anomaly, one of ease and comfort. But for the bulk of you, I'd wager that this teaching from Paul is one of great relief and assurance. Because as you look at your life, Christian, you see struggle. Struggle against sin, Struggle against doubt, unbelief, struggles in marriage, in your home, in your work, in your heart. If that's you, you should take courage. Remember that the pattern of the Christian life is one of suffering and then glory. Struggle and then peace. Christians fight the fight. Thirdly, the Christian stores up the treasure. So we spent last week considering the, the idea of money. But here we see Paul address specifically those he hadn't really addressed back in verses 3 through 10. And those are those in Ephesus who are already wealthy. And, and notice he doesn't tell them they're in sin. He doesn't tell them to get rid of their wealth. He instructs them how a wealthy Christian is to live. Well, the posture of a wealthy Christian's heart must be both towards God and his possessions. And that is, he is to be humble and generous and, and forward-thinking, thinking towards the future. There in verse 17, Paul reminds these wealthy Christians that riches are uncertain, but God is the sure foundation. Our lives are uncertain, aren't they? I mean, do you even know what your life will look like in a year, in a month, 
in a week this afternoon. Christian, we're reminded here that stability comes from knowing the one who is the source of life. He's the generous provider for his people, and we must place our hope in him. And then Paul goes on to kind of put a play on words. So he goes on to show that Christians actually should all be rich, but rich in true wealth, right? Every Christian, including these wealthy folks in Ephesus, should be rich in good works. So as we become more like Christ, more godly, as we live like the gospel is really true and impacts our lives and our finances and our investments and our time, we will be making a good investment. We will be storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future by devoting ourselves to godliness. Church, remember, money constantly whispers into your ear, I am life. Get me and you will have real life. But notice here in verse 19, what is real life? It's the eternal life to which we've been called, verse 12. It's, it's knowing Christ and being found in him. Christian, are you rich like that? So three things about the life of the Christian we find in these directives from Paul to Timothy as he wraps up his letter. Guard the deposit of the gospel, struggle in your fight of your faith, and store up treasure for heaven. But as we close up this book that's just been extremely practical, I want us to close by lifting our eyes off of these helpful directives that we need to understand. And just as we close up, just allow our eyes to linger upward to the nature of our God. So if these are the final instructions about the life of the Christian, let's see some final truths from Paul to Timothy about the God of the Christian. The God of the Christian. Look there in verse 15. So Paul tells Timothy all these uh, commands and, and charges, and he finishes up by saying that Jesus is coming back. There's going to be an appearing of him. And that will be at the proper time. That is when God so wills it to happen. And then that just, for some reason, all of this, especially this idea that Jesus is coming back, just overwhelms Paul and he breaks out into song, into what most likely was a, was a hymn or a creed of the early church that would have been known at the time. And, and this isn't atypical for Paul. This is really, this is this quintessential Paul. He interrupts himself all the time. He's overcome with Jesus. He's done it already back at the end of chapter 1, where he said, immortal, invisible. Remember that? And here, one more time before he closes the letter, he just breaks out into song to the great Lord Jesus Christ, to the God and Father. And in this hymn, we see the goal of our Christian life, the goal of our very existence, and it is God. So think about it, guys. We've been walking through some practical stuff in this letter. And why are we to obey all the instructions in this epistle? Why do we take the time to kind of trudge through issues that really cause us to think, like the, the roles of men and women in the church in chapter 2, the offices of elder and deacon in chapter 3, how to treat widows in chapter 5, and how to pay ministers, how to teach, how to pray? Why take all these really practical commands so seriously? Why are they worth obeying? 
Why is this Christian life worth fighting for at all? Because of the God of our faith. Because of the God we worship. Who is this God? Paul begins his doxology, his word of praise there, by saying that God is the blessed and only sovereign. I love the words of that hymn we sing from time to time. The words go, your mighty word was spoken, and light and life obeyed. That's what it means that God is sovereign. He is the supreme ruler over heaven and earth, over the universe and the galaxies. He is over all. Paul says he's also the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't know about you, but whenever I heard God spoken of in that way, I kind of thought that that meant he was the best of the best, you know? Kind of like calling your favorite president the president of presidents, or LeBron James, the athlete of athletes, right? God's simply the best. He's the cream that's risen to the top. But that understanding is not appropriate for this God. No, he's... He isn't simply the best king amidst all the kings we could select from. He's the king of kings in the sense that he is the king over all kings. He's in a different category of kingship. One scholar puts it this way. This statement in its entirety says that God is the possessor of the highest power over all who possess power. That God has full control over all who exercise control. No wonder the prophet in Isaiah 40 says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? This king of kings, this lord of lords, this God of the Christian alone has immortality, Paul says. So human beings made in God's image are in a way immortal. We will live forever, whether in glory or under God's judgment. But Paul is saying that God in and of himself is the only one who inherently owns eternity. Cannot die. If you think about it, if you can't die... I mean, that's the ultimate authority, isn't it? God is the source of life, Paul had mentioned. So he cannot cease to exist. I was watching the end of a, of a Marvel movie the other night. I won't mention the name just in case you haven't seen it yet. But anyway, the, the, villain, the villain keeps regenerating every time he dies or seems to die. And so as I watched, I really couldn't feel any rest or ease until I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, which were the end credits, that he was finally vanquished, right? I mean, the power that can never be killed, that's the greatest superpower, isn't it? That trumps everything else. In church, God is the only one who owns that power. He's the only one who is alone immortal. Verse 16 again. God dwells in unapproachable light. I think we're naturally drawn to light, aren't we? Now we're like those, those, flow, those uh, flies on a, on a summer night that linger in the light of a porch lamp. 
But when it comes to God's light, His perfection, His purity, His holiness, we're more like the, the flies that venture too close to the light and then find out that it's one of those bug zappers that immediately kills you before it's too late. God's light is pure. And as those who are impure, we cannot approach it. God is too great. He's too powerful. Church, this is our God. And finally, we see he is invisible. Paul says no one has ever seen or can see him. And so he's worthy of all honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Church, this is the God of the Christian. So we finish up our study of this mostly practical letter with a vision of the grandeur of God. No false teacher could conjure up a God like that. So dear Christian, is this your God? Is your God beyond your comprehension? Or is he merely an add-on to your life? A crutch when you feel weak? I thought of children here today when I came across this verse. And kids, just FYI, you should know that adults, including your parents, don't have this God all figured out. So we might act like we know a lot of theological terms, and we do know the important things, that God is our only hope, and the truths of the gospel, and we do try to understand more about God, but you should know that we too are awed and overwhelmed by his infiniteness his greatness, his power. And if you are too, you're just like us. Dear church family, however truly amazing the character of this God is, what's even more amazing, what's even more awe-inspiring for us is that this God, when we were his enemies, when we were ensnared in sin, when we hated his glory, sent his son to save us. Jesus took on our flesh and suffered our hurt and temptation, yet without sin. And on the cross, Jesus, the immortal one, died. Jesus, the one who dwelt in unapproachable light, took on our darkness. Jesus, the King of Kings, was tried as a criminal. Jesus, the Lord of Lords, was subjected to human courts. Jesus, the invisible God, became flesh. And on the cross, he took on himself the penalty we deserve for our rebellion against him. So that if anyone would repent of sin, Flee from it and turn in faith to him. You will be saved. Friend, if you haven't done that yet, do so today. There is no more pressing matter you have to decide than what you will do with Jesus. You cannot remain ambivalent. You cannot remain neutral. You either reject him or trust in him. And Christians, dear church family, we can now approach God through Christ. That's the glory of the gospel. 
As the scholar George Knight has written, we are to put on immortality, a characteristic that is God's alone. And we are to see him in Christ and be transformed rather than destroyed by that sight. Jesus, church, Jesus has fought the fight for us, hasn't he? He's fought the greatest war for us and he has triumphed. As we sang earlier, love has won, death has lost. This is the gospel worth fighting for. This is the gospel that sets us free to live and to struggle and to persevere and to endure until the end, taking hold of that which is really life. And so as we close out this book and celebrate two years together as a church family, let's fill our hearts and our minds with the glorious power of the nature of our God and the wonderful grace that he has shown in allowing his son to stoop down, to take on our filth, and to make us clean before the Father. Friend, I don't know where you're at this morning. Uh, You may come this morning feeling like life's waves are crashing over you and can barely come up for air. You may feel pretty peaceful this morning like a a calm river. But wherever you're at, your subjective feelings right now do not affect the fact that this gospel is true. And because of that, along with Timothy, we can fight on, we can press on, and we can sing on. Because of the gospel, it's well with our souls. Let's sing that, but first let's pray. Lord, there's nothing like the good news of the gospel. We're so grateful for this book that we've been able to study where we see Paul admonishing Timothy not to lose it, not to cave to false gospels, but to press on and guard the gospel he's been given. And so, Lord, we do rejoice in the gospel. We pray that you'd make us a church faithful to guard it, and proclaim it. We thank you for making us yours, and we cling to you. And Lord, we ask that as we seek to take hold of the eternal life, that which is truly life, that you would not let go of us. Our hope ultimately is in your hold on us. Bring us all the way home. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.